Hello again, this is Mark Griffin, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs, a team of software engineering experts led by legendary author Steve McConnell. Here we believe every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value. Today we continue with the second episode featuring special guest Jeff Atwood. Jeff is a software developer, author, and entrepreneur known for his coding horror blog, co-founding the computing programming question and answer website Stack Overflow, and currently developing Discourse, a powerful open source discussion platform. Over the holidays, we recorded Jeff and Steve discussing Steve's new book, More Effective Agile, which Jeff had just read. Their conversation broaches many of the key principles required for effective agile development that Steve describes in his book. Enjoy. Go for it. Yeah, way back in the 80s, they had two competing um, source code control tools that internally were known as Slime Software Library Management and Scum Software Configuration Management. Slime and Scum. Nice. Yeah. And these two tools were more or less peers. You know, some teams use one, some teams use the other. Well, the day came, and I can't remember which is which, but the day came when um, the server crashed for one of them, and uh, they went to restore the backup, and they found out that it wasn't possible to restore the backup. Oh, my God. Uh, they never actually tested. They tested whether oh. the backup was occurring, but they hadn't tested restoring the backup. Wow. So from that point on, Microsoft wow. had one internal tool rather than two because they had effectively lost the source code for the other one. Wow. That's kind a of great, ironic for a source code control tool. That lets me springboard to something that I also thought was interesting of the role of testers and testing. Because I, I, I agree, it's 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 in a weird place right now. But I liked the realistic thing that we do is there's a ton of focus on automated testing. And what actually now that you mentioned, one of the automated tests we do, like an integration level test, we actually grab a backup of a Discourse site and restore it. Right, like randomly we'll pick one customer. And we'll just restore to a test server that's all isolated um, to make sure the backups are working, right? Because you're right. Like, what's the ultimate failure mode is, well, our backups don't actually work. But we didn't know because we never tested the backups. Yeah, and I wonder, is that, oh is, that, is that scenario even possible in the era of infrastructure as code? You know, you couldn't even have that scenario today, could you? Uh, well, I think you can get into any sort of pathology you want to. Uh, it, it, that still happens, right? Like there's still if you try hard enough, yeah. Yeah, there's somebody out there doing it right now. Um, but I will say there, there's a ton of ing- a focus on an open source on like you know unit testing, integration testing, just automated testing kind of rules the universe. Um, but it puts manual testing, which is very valuable and can get to some really interesting stuff, in a weird place. Like, where does that go? Does that even happen? Because i got to be honest with you, the way we do discourse, realistically, we do tons and tons of effort on automated testing. Like, how can we catch this in the future? How can we... I mean, so many, so much testing, right? Um, that happens automatically on check-in. That happens just without having to think about it. It just works, and you monitor it. Um, but where do the testers, the, the human testers, come in? And we try to have just a really close relationship with the community, like at Meta Discourse, where we're very open to people coming in and giving us bugs, as long as they can like say, okay, look, here's how to reproduce it, right? That's mm-hmm. the gold standard. As long as you can do that, then we're always um, happy to, to see that. And it is kind of true that we treat... <laughs> our broader user base as our testers right like we don't have a person that is a tester on the team and you know okay yeah so i was curious what your take was on that but i thought at least what i read was very realistic <laughs> like okay mostly it's automated testing because uh, that's definitely the way we approach it well i think there's huge value in test automation i think that um i, I think you know this is one of those cases where the answer is it depends and 
I think in general, the answer is more automation. Uh, so, you know, if I have to have a first order approximation, it's automate more. Um, and I think most companies, you know, if you're a brand new company and you've got younger staff and they're more acquainted with, you know, recent development uh, modalities, then they're probably doing test automation and, and, you know, and you probably don't need more automation. But I think we still have all kinds of of either history or maybe you know to some degree project pathology that works against that you know we still see organizations where there's schedule pressure and the and the perception on the developers is we don't have time to automate the tests because we're under too much pressure you know my response to that is well <laughs> i don't really believe that because i think the automation saves you time um, in the very near term so you know it might not save you time today but i think it saves you time you know, at least within the next couple of weeks, probably. So, so in some extent, I think that's kind of an excuse, but it, you know, it does happen. You know, we occasionally will see environments where um, we end up with the tail wagging the dog because the, the test suite becomes so elaborate, it kind of, the test suite becomes the product almost. And then the team ends up making product decisions that are driven by, test suite considerations more than by product considerations. And I think that's something where, you know, if you ever get into that mode, that should be a pretty big warning sign. And you look at it and say, you know, what really is going on here and is it healthy? And, you know, we have one company we've worked with that made the very interesting decision to stop doing automated testing because they felt it was actually inhibiting their ability to um, improve the direction of their product. Wow. Just because that was too much of a legacy tail they were dragging with the automated test suite. Now I think that's the definitely the off nominal case, but still an interesting data point. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually had another thought while you were talking that I think is very true where there's an incredible amount of engineering that goes into automated testing. It's actually quite difficult. Also, if it's the, done well, yeah. And build engineering and also like, you know, UI type testing, because there is a minimal amount of sort of final what we call smoke testing where we make sure the discourse application looks like it's working in other words it has stuff on the screen you can click on it's almost like <laughs> you, but seriously uh -huh. that's the final test is like you instrument the browser it's like fire up a web browser point at this url see if i can click on you know and again what if the ui changes then you've broken that test right so the whole build engineering and test engineering is really deep and maybe that's the better way to look at because it says here, key principle, integrate testers in the development teams. And I was thinking, like, how do we really do that in the real world of discourse? And I think the answer is to have a really deep respect for build engineering and test engineering um, as things that are challenging technically. And having somebody in your team that just specializes in build engineering would actually be huge. Um, yeah. And I'm not saying that would be their only job, but uh, that's a real skill that I think it's very little respect, but is quite hard. To me, that's a function of project size, and and uh, you get to a certain size and not not super large. I think you need that specialization of the build engineer. At a smaller size than that, I think you need the specialization of test specialist. And I think test is a little bit of a blind spot for developers, which is maybe a bit of a surprising statement given how much focus has been put on developer test over the last 15 years or so. But I think while there's been an emphasis on developers creating test cases, there hasn't been much of an emphasis on developers actually knowing what the hell they're doing with testing. And I think it would surprise a lot of developers to hear me say that 
I think the the knowledge area of test is as deep or deeper than the knowledge area of development. You know, it's it's a more mature knowledge area. It has been approached in a lot of ways more systematically, and I think a lot of developers barely scratch the surface in their knowledge of approaches to test. Um, and so, in some ways, the pendulum has swung away from. Uh, having test specialists and swung toward developers writing their own tests, and I think that's fine. But I think the um, I think the developers, um, you know, the fact that they're writing tests doesn't mean that they're writing good tests or that they're not writing a whole bunch of really re- redundant tests. And so, you know, getting developers to be a little bit more, or maybe a lot more, skilled in writing tests. Sorry, we're getting some kind of um, notice here. Hey, um, should we take a break maybe for five minutes and then resume? So one one question I have for you is, is so I know you work with a lot of uh, larger companies that do internal software development. And one thing that I always struggle with as, as a developer was... Um, Project software projects that are all internal to a company can have some of the really worst pathologies um, <laughs> in software because the customer is is sort of captive, you know, like the customer is the internal organization, right? And I felt like one of the most brilliant things that Jeff Bezos did at Amazon was this idea that to run a really big company, you treat everything at the company as if it was a product you would sell to anyone, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's what AWS is. It's like them taking Amazon's internal server resource and saying, well, what if, you know, I need a server to install, you know, scale out the Amazon.com was actually just a service we provided to any company that wanted to scale out their web service, right? And that was such a brilliant insight because it cut to the heart of what I viewed as the deep pathologies of internal projects, which... I'm sure you have a good window on because you work with a lot of, of large companies. Um, and I was curious what your thoughts were on that. Like, how do you avoid that whole pitfall of, you know, it's it's not a product that customers are going to see. So how do you really have a customer, right? Like yeah. that. Yeah. No, I agree emphatically. I think I think one of the strengths of Microsoft in the in the mid '90s when I was there was the same approach you described with Amazon, where they conceived the entire rest of the company as supporting the software development organization. I mean, the software development organization was the pointy end of the spear and everybody else in the company existed to support them. So as a software developer in that organization, you felt the level of support and you realized that, you know, my time matters and I need to spend it on advancing the interests of the company or getting my project done and making world-class products. And um, so yeah, I think that's a you know among other things is just clarity about what matters in this company and and uh, you know if you start getting politics and competition and you know corporate communications start thinking that it's the thing that matters the most or HR starts thinking it's the thing that matters the most then I think the companies kind of become unclear about its own priorities and that leads to lots of unhealthy behavior. Um, for companies that don't actually sell software or sell a device that the software is in, or the way I think of it is just basically the software development is between them and the money uh, somehow or other, um, I do think that what you end up with sometimes is some overly informal relationships between, um, you know, in these organizations, they often re- it's often referred to as software development or engineering and the business and you end up with, I think, some overly informal relationships between software development and the business. Uh, and you know, one of the 
top level 30,000 foot recommendations that I find myself making in cases like that is you got to treat the software development org or the the you know one way or the other the business has to treat software development or software development has to treat the business as a more arm's length relationship and yeah you all work for the same company and the same person signs your paychecks and you know you report to work in the same building or whatever but it actually is healthy and works better if you conceive it as a third-party relationship and adopt some of the formality that you would have in a third-party relationship, including formality around expectation setting, um, formality around the commitment process, um, formality around uh, you know change process. You know, one of the interesting things about Agile and Scrum is that you know, one of the canonical rules of Scrum is that you don't accept changes mid-sprint. But we still see that violated pretty routinely, um, and you know, and I think not to the benefit of the Scrum team, but really not to the benefit of the organization because it's, you know, it's it's disruptive. And so, um, you know, that's an example where I think in a product organization you may not have that in an internal kind of IT uh, software development organization. You get that informality that ends up, I think, probably doing more harm than good. Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't know how, having been in the world of sort of internal software development um, and external software development, I think it's vastly superior to have customers that, that will tell you the truth, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the problem, right? You have customers that are so captive. It's like, well, I guess I have to use the software. So, I mean, what 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 can I really tell you that's going to make you? I can't, like, stop paying for this. Like, I can't. It's it's such a weird, weird relationship. So, I was um I think, you know, you very can happy. end up with politics in any kind of organization. But I think you end up with more politics in internal development where, you know, the requirements end up being decided on the basis of sometimes on the basis of who has more political clout rather than what really is needed by the business. And this is yet another reason I think that the idea of putting developers in direct contact with actual users uh, is helpful because you know if you've got a lot of politics going on at the top level, but the developers actually have a really good understanding of the users and how they're using the software, that can make up for some sins in the politics at the top level. So yet another good reason to like the developers in contact with the end users. And I love the way you described it as a silver bullet. I was really happy about that because you're <laughs> right. Like of all the things we could talk about, that might actually be, I completely agree with that. That is kind of the silver bullet. If you're looking for that's it. And it's exciting to me because like I always had a hard time articulating like a discourse like, well, that's just the way you do it. Like I've internalized it so much that like I don't even understand people that don't get this. Like I, don't, I can't even. I literally can't talk to them. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Like you don't talk to you? That's the only way this works, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. And I think another you know another way to look at that is is there always are going to be gaps in the stated requirements. You know, no matter how you state them, if you're writing down the user story and you know the user story is the documentation, but there's always the explanation that goes with the user story. It doesn't matter if you have an explanation. There's still some kind of gap, and the gap has to be filled. You know, there, there are assumptions that have to be filled by the development team, and it's not going to be the case that the development team goes and checks every single assumption with the actual users. Either they don't have that much access to the users, or they don't have any access to the users. And depending on the kind of software you're you're developing, and depending on how much detail you're able to get in requirements from um, your users. You know, the gaps that the developers have to fill are going to be either small gaps where it's probably, you know, a good bet that they're going to be filled 
in a way that makes sense anywhere up to large gaps where it really is questionable whether the developers are going to be able to fill those gaps the way that the users meant. But the more the developers understand the users, the bigger those gaps can be and the higher the confidence you can have that the developers are going to close those gaps in a way that makes sense. And um, you're always going to have gaps. It doesn't matter. You can be doing medical device software where you have incredibly rigorous uh, requirements. There are still gaps that have to be closed. You know, they're just much smaller. Uh, but in normal kind of business systems development, um, you know, business critical systems, not life critical systems, the gaps tend to be quite a bit bigger. And so the risk that you take on of not being able to close those gaps reliably inside the development team I think ends up uh, becoming a bigger issue. And so, you know, so in agile development, especially Scrum, the notion of having a product owner that's internal to the Scrum team, I think is a reasonable part of the solution to trying to close those gaps effectively. I mean, in a way that makes sense um, from the end user point of view. But, you know, the more people you have on the team who understand what the end users want, you know, the less you have to actually use the product owner in that way. And, and really the closer the software is going to end up looking to uh, what was intended by the end user. Did you ever see that video of the guy who tried to make his own toaster from from scratch? No, I didn't. <laughs> it's a fascinating video. The guy starts with completely raw materials and goes through the whole process and he ends up with something that can kind of cook a wow. piece of bread, but the resemblance between what you'd think of as a toaster and the device that he was able to manufacture from, I mean, like literally from like starting with raw steel. Right. Um, wow. You know, it doesn't resemble a toaster very much. And if you look at the software systems that software teams build, I think sometimes the end user has one image in their mind and the system they deliver looks a lot like the toaster that this guy built from raw materials where eh, it definitely heats up a piece of bread, but it doesn't really look much like what uh, what you had in mind when you started. Yeah, so I think, Steve, maybe you undersold this book. You could have put a title like, I have found the silver bullet in software development. <laughs> I right. have the answer. The only way to find out is by buying this book, right? And right. And, and I actually would have been happy with that. I would have been like, yes, that's actually how this works. <laughs> that's the one yeah. the one thing you can do that almost universally works. Um, and also, to the extent that, well, there's two missing pieces. Like, is the team actually empowered to actually make product changes? Like, they, can they actually make decisions? Um, that's one. And then also for the end users, like, do the end users... <laughs> there's 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 a saying I like to have is like I love interacting with users but only 10% of their ideas are going to be any good because <laughs> they just they're users right they don't always have the same context as everybody else sometimes they have their own little weird pathological situations that they really want in the product that don't actually make any sense um so you have to still filter the the feedback to like the the sane users that kind of also have the same vision you do because sometimes people want to pull you know i know another car analogy you like is the subaru brat right like <laughs> is it a car is it a truck and now it's like neither of those things and it kind of sucks right like <laughs> users will turn your car into a truck if you let them you know and yeah. you got to be careful so there's it's interesting to all this negotiation all the social interaction of like the way this stuff works <laughs> it's hard to even know what correct is it's debatable whether two people even agree what correct is um it becomes very interpretive and one thing i like that you talked about that i thought was very um um helped focus this was the idea of decriminalizing mistakes but i think that actually doesn't go far enough i would actually say you celebrate mistakes um you literally have to push that far because <laughs> 
everybody's so weird about this, right? And just saying, yes, we love making mistakes. It's like our favorite thing to do. But there's a caveat. There's a little star. But we also recover from them very, very quickly, right? That's the art. The art is like not making mistakes. In fact, hey, make all the mistakes you want. It's awesome. Mistakes are good. Mistakes means we're learning, right? We got to break it and put it back together and then we'll make it even better. But we have to do that incredibly quickly, right? Like the consequence of a mistake should be, oh, we had, we just reset the build, right? Like the build didn't pass. You know what I mean? Like you caught it before it even went into the build for us, which would be meta, which would be our first line of defense, right? Yeah. Um, and all kinds of mistakes, like mistakes in terms of like just product design, like the, the feature is confusing. Like we, we get so much support about this feature. It's like, well, that's broken. We have made a mistake, right? Like, um, uh, and you also reference this in your book of mistakes in code. Like, why do we keep having bugs on this one feature, right? This feature, the code is, is not designed well because we're constantly fixing the logic in this routine, right? This is the third time we've had to go back and touch this code, right? That's, that's a kind of mistake. You made it too complicated or the algorithm doesn't match the problem or something. There's some huge mismatch here. Um, so yeah, decriminalize mistakes. I love that. And then I, w- I would humbly suggest is, you know, celebrate mistakes actually um, is an even better, better way, I think, to look at it. But I, I think it that. depends on how much of a pendulum swing you need. Now, if your organization is really hard over on the criminalizing mistakes, then maybe you need to swing the pendulum over to celebrate for a while. I mean, like you said, I think really what you're trying to do is is trying to reduce the friction around mistakes so that they're benef- you know, that in the end they're beneficial. And I think you know, there's a taxonomy of mistakes. There are just boneheaded mistakes that you shouldn't have made because you were careless. And you'd like to avoid those. Um, there are mistakes that arise just because what we're doing is complicated and we're going to make mistakes. It's unrealistic to expect that we can do software development without just huge rafts of mistakes, even with uh, uh, good attention to detail and uh, good uh, conscientious uh, work and so on. And those, I think, just, uh, I mean, what we're really after, decriminalize mistakes is just one way to to describe what we're really after. Celebrate mistakes is, you know, maybe attempting to describe the same thing. But what we really want is just the, the habit to form of learning from the mistakes and using them as, as learning opportunities. And uh, um, so, I mean, I think that's really it is... You know, have we advanced over the last 20 years? I think so. But how did we advance? Well, (laughs) a big part of how we advance is by learning from our mistakes. And so to whatever degree we can accelerate that process, then, you know, that's the degree to which we're going to continue to improve as uh, an industry and to the degree to which any individual company is going to improve as a company. Right. And then just again, that it's anarchic, it's an anarchic, chaotic process and mistakes are part of the fabric of what it is. Like... This idea that you can have this super strict engineering methodology that makes everything work without trauma <laughs> is kind of an illusion. So it's good to let go for, let go of that. And I think you know, decriminalize or even celebrating mistakes is a great way to you know put that lesson sort of front and center. Yeah. So another thing that you brought up in the book that I liked was this idea of commander's intent and. What I like about this is it, it works on a couple different levels. So commander's intent is first, don't micromanage your team, right? They need they need agency. They need like the ability to control what they're doing. So you, you focus on like what the, the result that you want is. Like this is what I want to happen ultimately at a very high level without even talking about like, oh, this button goes here. This action leads to this. It's like this is the outcome that we want, right? And 
I think that's great from a leadership perspective, but it's also great from a user perspective where users get in this mode too where they're trying to describe what they think the product should do rather than what they want to happen, right? What work they want done or the event that they want to take place, right? So reframing the user and saying, look, you know, don't focus so much on this button, that button. Just like, what, what, what's the goal here? What are you trying to accomplish? What's your, you know, end state that you want? Um, is is really powerful and you know even on in software development like you know you'll think of a feature and then you get so mired in like well this we have this dialogue that does this so I have modified the dialogue you're, you're thinking in terms of um, you know building on what's there rather than you know maybe there's a completely better way that wouldn't involve it yeah we have to write new code make a new dialogue but it would be so much cleaner right um, rather than trying to bolt that stuff on so I, I love that idea of commander's intent you know like take a step back and try not to get so enmeshed in the problem, like the, the tools, and just say, what's the goal here? And you can come up with some really great solutions where even in discourse, like, you know, essentially seven years in, we're taking a step back with some features, like, for example, bookmarking. We completely are rebuilding now because we realize, like, that doesn't... What do you do with a bookmark? Like, what's the point of a bookmark, right? Like, it's just... It was interesting to, like, go that far back, right? And just think, well, what's what's the goal? Why would you do this as a user? Like, what's the point of... I want to put a bookmark on this. Like, it implies an activity. It implies a calendar. It implies a schedule, which was the other key insight for us, was this is a scheduling feature, right? That's what makes it so good. It's like, oh, by Friday, I can get a reminder, and then I can get this thing done, right? That makes it a such a better feature, right? Rather than just, oh, here's a bookmark that... Uh, you know, it doesn't help you. It's just uh, literally tying a string on your finger. Uh, plus, it's duplicated in the browser. So why even have it in the software? So, yeah, uh, taking a step back and thinking, what is the intent? What is the goal here? Is I, I love that. And again, very holistic. Very, you know, I was worried honestly when I started reading this book. I was like, well, I'm managing this chaotic project. I'm not sure if Steve's in touch with like how you know <laughs> how things work uh, out here in the open source world. But it was really refreshing to see how fluid the process you're describing was, and it was very mappable. Uh, to what we're doing on discourse. Yeah, in I fact, think only you know, one this section. is one of the problems of writing a book that actually has some long legs and is still being read 15 years later is, you know, you as a person move on, but the book is still stuck back in 2004. And so people kind of just without thinking about it, just assume that you're stuck back in 2004. And <laughs> uh, of course, you know, I've had lots of experiences right. since 2004. and uh, But, you know, most of the stuff I've done has been captured more in you know, classes or consulting engagements or keynote talks or that kind of thing, um, not so much in book form. So, you know, one of the nice things about More Effective Agile, from my point of view, is it gave me a chance to to uh, uh, record the fact that, you know, my thinking is, has moved along along with the rest of the software world. And, um, you know, Commander's Intent, I think we talked uh, earlier earlier in the session about autonomy, I don't think you can have autonomy without some flavor of commander's intent, just because autonomy doesn't mean do whatever you want to do. Autonomy means you have broad latitude to do the right thing within parameters that are defined in terms of what we want to accomplish. And so commander's intent for the leader, and that whole book is really aimed at the leader, gives the leader a way to think about, well, how do I delegate? And I think, you know, because the book is aimed at leaders, part of the challenge in the book is to say, I do think that one of the things that Agile has made challenging is that in more traditional command and control uh, project management style, um, the leader kind of knew what to do. They commanded and controlled. But in Agile development, where they're not supposed to do that anymore, well, what do they do? So 
I think Commander's Intent gives them a really specific model for one of the more important things that they should do, which is set direction for the team, you know, in a particular way that still gives them autonomy, but also uh, gives them clear direction. And, you know, there's a fine line between delegation and abdication, but I think Commander's Intent helps you to, helps you as a leader to understand where is that line and how do I delegate and set up the team to be autonomous while still actually taking my leadership responsibility of, of giving direction, but not micromanaging. Yeah, no, I, I love the concept, and I think it, again, captures sort of the way things work <laughs> from my perspective pretty accurately. Um, so, so that was encouraging. And then another thing that you talk about is just essentially defining what done means, defining what ready means for requirements. Because, <laughs> like, yeah, you do have to, as a project, decide you know, basically, you know, what that means, like, how how do I know I'm done? Because you're never really done, you know, like, that's another thing I like about the gardening metaphor. It's like, oh, well, are we done gardening? Well, it's, no, I mean, there's going to be another summer, another spring, you know, this happens every year. It's like a cyclical, natural thing that just keeps going and going. Um, but, you know, what, when do you harvest? That's a decision, right? Like, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, what part of the season? What are you planting? There's still plenty of decisions where you have to come up with communal definitions of, you know, is how do we define done? Is this feature done? Yeah, the funny thing about this is if you go back and read, like, NASA Software Engineering Lab documents, their recommended approach to software development, these documents are pretty dense, and I don't even know if there's any place you can find them online anymore. But they describe a really button-down process that has very, very well-defined entrance criteria and exit criteria from the different phases or stages. And... When, I think if people were to read those documents today, they would seem very waterfallish, and they would read the entry criteria and the exit criteria, and they would say, wow, this is very restrictive. But if you take a step back from it, there's not a whole lot of difference between their entry criteria and exit criteria and today's use of definition of ready or definition of done. I mean, definition of ready is essentially entrance criteria. Definition of done is essentially exit criteria. But you know, for whatever reason, the concept of definition of done and definition of ready are a lot more palatable uh, to teams. And then especially when you add in, you know, by the way, you need to define a definition of done that works for your team specifically. And yeah, I can give you a generic example, which I do in the book, but you need to make sure that it actually works. And then you need to apply the inspect and adapt idea to make sure that it keeps working and improve it if it needs to be improved. And then same thing for definition of ready. So you know, I guess I, you know, and to me, this is kind of an example of everything that's old is new again. Um, the idea of entry and exit criteria are not new, but we've got a new flavor of it that, um, you know, seems to resonate with teams pretty well. And they actually, you know, they learn pretty quickly that if they violate their own definition of done, uh, bad things happen and it causes more work for them. And if they violate their definition of ready, it makes it makes their work more difficult. And so, you know, it gives them a way to buy into those concepts. The other thing that's interesting is uh, definition of done is also something you negotiate with your customers because there's, uh, I mean, I guess with any product, there's 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 sort of the core experience, which is, you know, really heavily t- t- tested because it's the main thing that people do in your application. Then there's like the other 10% of the time, which is like this long tail of like other little things that your software does that may or may not be broken at any, at any given time. Uh, so even with your customers, you're getting an expectation of like, 
okay, it's not working. Let me just fix it really fast. You know, like we're, we're optimizing for the more realistic expectation. It's, it's not that it's never going to be broken. It's always going to be a little broken, but we can fix it really, really fast. I can deploy a version really fast to you. I have confidence that the current version is good. You know what I mean? Like all this builds on the, the, the solid framework of engineering. If you're not confident about putting a relatively recent version of the software in the customer's hands, and then you haven't done a good job with all the previous slices, all the previous steps um, that you would use to get up to that point. And as you pointed out, like fix the process, right? Like why don't you feel comfortable <laughs> with the idea that, oh, it can be a little broken, but we'll just immediately fix it. Like why your process is broken if, if you can't really do that really rapidly. Um, and, you know, it's a little disturbing how doing things quickly becomes like almost something that you optimize for. Um, but it, it has all those knock-on benefits of the more quickly you get stuff out there, the more quickly you know if it's actually any good. Does it actually make any sense? Or if it just super sucks and you're having massive performance problems. There's a whole class of problems in software where the faster you know, the better it is. You know, So in a way, you're, you're, you're running. You're optimizing for going pretty fast. Um, but to me, that's always felt really good. Like, I feel like the worst projects are the ones where nothing's really changing. There's no risk. There's nothing... Um, there's no cadence to it, you know, it's just, it's just stagnating. It's like you're either moving forward and flowing like water. I guess water is again, you're either flowing like in a river or you're stagnant and stagnant water is not good. It's not good water, Steve, right? Like it has to be moving for it to be good, for it to be what it is, you know, like the water needs to flow. Well, I think the key is feedback. You know, it's uh, the longer you wait to put something out, the longer you're delaying feedback. And if you're highly confident that the thing you're building is going to be very satisfactory, then maybe you don't need the feedback. But as we've <laughs> discussed already, um, you know, the times when you can genuinely have that high confidence are probably few and far between, or experience says they are anyway. So the more you can do to shorten the feedback loop of getting some software out in front of somebody, it doesn't have to be the entire market necessarily, but you want to get it in front of somebody and get the feedback and then course correct and course correct ideally in the small before you have to course correct in the large. Um, you know, that's really the key, I think, is just shortening those feedback loops. And, and uh, you know, quick releases, I do think the Agile Manifesto that favors working software over documentation, you know, users have an ability to engage with the live software that they really don't have with uh, documentation and I, I, I do think there's there are alternatives to that I think really live looking smoke and mirrors prototypes can uh, do the job but you know with the speed of code development these days I think the benefit of live looking prototypes over production code are not what they used to be you know if it only takes you 50% more to effort to write production code instead of a live looking prototype then it's probably not a great use of your time to write uh, live-looking prototype and then spend the next 150% of the time writing the production code. But the, you know, the goal here, I think, is just shorten the feedback loop. Get the feedback, course correct, give yourself a learning, a chance to learn. And in the book, I summarize all that as inspect and adapt. Yeah, the, or the uh, OODA loop. I don't know if there's a way to say that, but the I always loop, love yeah. that analogy, too, because it's just speed is good. And that was very liberating for me because I always felt I could go really fast. I remember, so analogy time, I remember in high school there was a programming contest. I actually wasn't very good at programming contests. I wasn't like an elite coder in that sense. I was better at just sort of philosophizing and thinking about software than I was at hardcore, quick writing of software. Um, and it was on the Apple II. And 
I remember the way I was doing the problems at this competition was I would just go literally sit down with the problem on the computer and just start typing, start trying things. And I remember one of the teachers came over and he's like, oh no, you can't do that. You're doing this wrong. You got to go sit at the table, think about the problem, write down your solution, and then go to the computer. And I was like, what? Like, that is not how this works, sir. Like, okay, boomer, because like, no, like that's not how we're doing this now. <laughs> and I was right. I mean, that's, this is the point, right? Like the further you get from, oh, we take these punch cards and we put them in, and then we find out the program's broken. It's like, no, no, no. We want to find out immediately in the IDE when things are broken or at the testing stage or at the local unit test or at the build tests or even user acceptance tests, right? Like there's so many levels where you want to catch that uh, beforehand. So again, it's... Yeah, I mean, back in the day, you had the notion of of you'd write your program on punch cards, you'd take it over to the computing center, they would schedule a time for it to run, they would charge your department for the amount of computer time that you took to run your program, um, you know, the economics of all that were different. The economics of waiting to get your job to run, the economics of your department being charged every time you tried tried something, you know, but that's completely different today, obviously. I mean, that whole scenario probably seems nonsensical to most of the people listening to this. The idea of, I'm getting charged by, you know, the hour for, by the minute for computer time. You know, I'm being, I have to have my job scheduled and it's not going to run for two hours. I can't just try to run it right now. Um, you know, I mean, interestingly enough, I do think there are examples now where if you're doing something that's just massive, you, you might actually have a similar model. I was talking to a guy at Google a few weeks ago who was giving an example of something like that where internally they could schedule something that was going to take, you know, massive amount of computing power. And indeed, it was scheduled and it was charged in some sense. But, you know, that's kind of a special case, I think, in terms of the scale for typical development work anymore. You just, you know, the advantage of being able to run it at your desk and get feedback immediately is just that and it's another example of tightening up the feedback loop and you know and accelerating the learning opportunity and then one final thing i want to talk about because i i loved it because it tied into so much of the other concepts in the book and again stuff that really resonated is true to me is this idea of delivering in vertical slices is again to me the only way to do this because one of the easy pathologies you can get into is the the opposite of vertical slices would be okay we talk to the database people that work on the database schema. Then we talk to the UI people <laughs> and get the UI design, right? And then we code, you know, and then go through that process and talk to the deployment people. Um, the more other teams you're talking to that control, like, the output here, the worse it is, right? Not because, I mean, it's almost like the, the pathology of the design of the organization is uh, you want rather than that you want to say look here's the feature you want you can just deploy the database at will just design the schema the way you think makes sense um come up with a basic ui and you'll get feedback on this stuff later right this isn't like the final step but like go through the design process get everything the way you think makes sense build the feature get the feature in in the hands of us the, the rest of the team and the users and then look at oh is the database correct is the ui correct um, all that stuff, right? Like it, that's such a better experience. And oh, I think so. Yeah. yeah, and I think the alternative is that if you have each each group working kind of semi-autonomously, then you end up with architecture group treating the architecture as the product, the database group treating the database as the product, and individ the team's sense of aesthetics is just completely messed up. You know, you don't want the database team thinking the database is the product, or there's virtue in you know, in an isolated sense of the database looking a particular way, the virtue in the database is supporting the real product. 
and the aesthetic needs to be how well does the database support the real product not does the database look kind of cool on its own and uh, so yeah we've definitely seen the the you know I think of it occurring mostly in the architecture area where you know <laughs> where the architecture becomes the product and you you just can't have that it doesn't doesn't support the business and the other thing I like about this is it emphasizes, like, yes, you need to understand database fundamentals to be good at your work. That's important. The idea of an unindexed query should be terrifying you, right? Like, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be like, oh, someone else will fix my slow query. It's like, no, you are going to fix your slow query because, right, because think about all the pathologies. That the reason I'm up. laughing is I worked, on a, I worked on a vertical market application a long time ago, and there was one particular report. It was a, you know, there's some heavy duty analytics in this application, but there was one report that just took way too long um, to run. And, and we had the guy who was in charge of that area leave the team. And I got assigned to take over the team. And I went and tried to figure out why the report was so slow. And I found, indeed, the table the report was using in the database was not indexed. And uh, just building an index on the table cut the time to produce the report by a factor of like, you know, almost a thousand. And so we were able to release the next version of this vertical market application with this massive upgrade in performance as a feature. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so yeah, like you said, you know, just fundamentals of putting an index on the table. And even not just the database stuff. I mean, that's great because, you know, the, the, the unindexed table, that's great. But you got to look like a hero. It's like the, 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 the lesson there, Steve, is create problems and then, and then solve them and you'll look like a genius, right? Look at this. I made the query a thousand times faster. That's why I get the big bucks, right? Um, but this also carries through to usability. Like, okay, you should come up with UI. I mean, and so in that example, too, you know, the, that was listed as like the top of the feature list that people wanted for the next release. So if I'd wanted to, I could have pretended to work on it for like three months. And with that performance gain, everybody would have been happy. That's right. So just sandbag. Sandbag as much as possible. That's the other lesson <laughs> in the book. And then you'll look right. really, really good with your metrics. Um, but also y UI, like having programmers that can come up with a reasonable UI and not be like, oh, that's the UI people's job. Like, I don't even know how to build UI is bad engineering. You should have a reasonable idea of UI and you should be able to copy good UI at minimum, in my opinion, as a developer. So... You know, it, it, this idea of like vertical slices is so powerful because it's teaching you the correct way to build a team. Like, in fact, the only way that I think that any of this, you can make the other stuff work at great cost, like billions of dollars. But if you don't want to cost billions of dollars, then this is the only way that I, I think actually works. So that was, again, very gratifying to read about and is, again, mirrors exactly what we do in discourse. Like when we come up with features, it's like, okay, you own the feature, you know, I'll give you feedback, here's some basic ideas, but run with it and see what you can come up with. And um, touches the database, touches UI, touches engineering, it touches, you know, have we had crippling performance regressions as a result of this feature, which has happened from time to time. Um, and again, why didn't we catch that in testing? Why don't we have a test that says, oh, the app is now two times slower than it was before, right? Because of this new thing that we had at every page load, right? Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really powerful concept and uh, really great stuff. Yeah, I think that, you know, in Agile, there's a notion of cross-functional or cross-discipline team. And, and uh, you know, that matches that matches the idea of vertical slices. And so, uh, you know, when you start to see, I mean, we see organizations that either take a step away from the Agile ideal or that never take the step toward it in the first place. But, you know, that is one of the more challenging things organizationally to set up if you've got 
you know, a lot of organizations have heavily matrixed, especially large organizations, have heavily matrixed structures, and they may actually have to change some organizational policies at pretty high levels in the organization to support creation of truly cross-functional or cross-discipline teams. Uh, but that's not a reason not to do it. And uh, um, But, you know, it's interesting. There are certain things you can do. There are a lot of, There's a lot of stuff you can do at the team level to adopt agile practices. But, you know, there are walls that you hit. And that can be one of them, and, and I think that's one of the more damaging walls that you hit. You know, if, you're, if your company is set up in a way where you have to have the database group and the usability group and you can't get those people on a cross-functional team, that's definitely going to limit um, your ability to move quickly and make good decisions locally and adopt the vertical slice approach that we've been talking about. Yeah. For sure. I mean, it's, uh, as I said, I, I don't feel, I get less and less religious as I get older. I remember your discussion about religious arguments, which every programmer has gotten into this at some point. I mean, spaces versus tabs, still a thing, still a thing. Uh, but <laughs> It's amazing how many of these things are still a thing. Yeah, uh, but you do tend to get somewhat less religious, I think, as you get older, because it's just, you know, the answer to everything is really, it depends. Um, uh, but that being said. <laughs> yeah, even VI is coming back, so, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, truly, everything that's old is new again. Exactly. It, 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 it's I, I resist being religious, but there was a few things in here I felt that were nice, like the, the silver bullet of putting developers in touch with users is, in fact, actually a silver bullet. Vertical slices is maybe the only correct way to do this, in my opinion. Uh, so yeah, it was nice to see some of that echoed there. So I want to finish with one last thing. So one quote in your book that I liked, and this is just a, a thing that was going around the internet, but I, I loved it. Uh, it was a quote, uh, a magical quote from the CFO that says, what happens if we invest in our staff and they leave? And then the CEO replies, well, what happens if we don't invest in them and they stay at the company? <laughs> uh, and I love that. It just illustrates like, well, where are you? Re- you're paying for everything, whether you calculate it or not, right? Like everything has has a cost and is, is a choice, right? Like what metrics are we optimizing for and all that stuff. But I love that holistic idea of taking a step back and saying, well, you know, what's the bigger picture? That's almost like commander's intent, right? You're literally showing the CEO saying, well, the commander's intent is the company's not going to survive if we have crappy people that we don't invest in and they see that we don't care about them, then we're only going to get people that don't care if we care about them, which is eventually going to kill us, right? Um, Yeah, I I like your characterization of the quote a lot. I do think that that's a great way to look at it, that it really is just a matter of one person's got the narrow perspective, the other person has the more holistic perspective, and the nice thing about that quote is the holistic perspective is just so much more clearly valuable than the narrow perspective. And I do think that is kind of the purpose of writing that book in a nutshell is to try to take a step back. Um, you know, the book is aimed at, at leaders and you have to go into some detail. Most of the leaders in our field come from a software development background, so they certainly have a capacity for detail. Um, but really what we're trying to do is rise above the details and paint some broad strokes of what it takes to really have an effective uh, agile organization and certainly the points that you've zeroed in on in this conversation are some of the big ones uh, the, the commander's intent the vertical slicing um, you know I would add I think short feedback loops are a super important idea and then just the idea of inspect and adapt you know to learn from your mistakes decriminalize mistakes, uh, make it make it an organizational priority to learn. 
and uh, you know those all those are all important important topics. Yeah, absolutely. And the other challenge is, you know, the older I get, the more I do this, the more I feel like there's no rules. There's like there's no you know, it's it's so challenging to come up with guidelines that make sense because the answer is always it depends. But it was still heartening to see some of the, you know, higher level stuff that we mentioned, like, you know, keep it short, keep it small, go go fast on your cycle loops are reliable forms of advice that I think will, will help teams succeed. Um, so we, 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 we have sort of tamed the water a little bit. Uh, and it can be fun. Like, I mean, to go with the water analogy, it's, it's, it's fun to ride the rapids, man. Like I really have fun on the discourse project. (laughs) It's very exciting. (laughs) I'm still very animated. I still like, we're still, still getting to like important breakthroughs and the way the product works, the, the software architecture. So if you do it right, it's, it's, it farming can be fun. I guess that's what we're saying. It's fun to farm. It feels good to work the land, Steve. Uh, so yeah. Well, I think it's a lot more fun to come up with really cool ideas and implement them and see how much the customers like them than it is to fight fires and correct stuff that we really should have known better than to break in the first place. So I think I think if you take the ideas seriously, you end up having a lot more fun. Yeah, absolutely. And that really comes through in the book that we haven't lost touch with that sense of fun of playing with this very fluid thing that can change all the time. That's one of the powerful things about it. That's what always surprised me about teams that like were afraid of change. Like, well, change is what software is. Like, if you don't like change, then why are you here? Right? Like, that's the whole point is all this stuff is like fast, fast, fast. Change is really rapidly. It's very fluid. You can make it whatever you want it to be. That's, that's power, you know? So I think acknowledging that helps you build better software. So yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, good stuff. Well, I definitely appreciate uh, you taking the time with me. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it too. It's nice and to catch up. Love the book. Rese- represents a real um, you know evolution in the way we look at stuff, and I would actually recommend it to everyone. Well, thank you, Jeff. Uh, appreciate your. I've appreciated your interest, and I've appreciated you uh, taking the ball on the code complete topic and running with it, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Keeping coding horrors alive. To, uh, That's my job. Is looking forward to what you're working on all the time as well. well. Well, thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation between Steve and Jeff. Please join us next time for another episode of Inspect and Adapt, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host. Jesse Bronson has been on audio, and Devin Musgrave has been our producer. Have a great next sprint. If you enjoyed this episode of Inspect and Adapt, and you have comments or would like to talk to one of our practitioners, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. And feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find us. We'd love to hear from you.